From the moment she was accepted at the prestigious Royal Academy of Dramatic Art with virtually no experience on any stage, today's guest has blazed a trail through England's most prestigious theatre companies, including the Royal Court, the Royal Shakespeare Company, the Royal National Theatre, and Shakespeare's Globe. She made an indelible New York debut in A Doll's House in 1997, returned to Broadway last season in the title role of Mary Stewart, and is now playing the role she created on the English stage in God of Carnage. Welcome to the American Theatre Wing's Downstage Center. I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theatre Wing, and I'm thrilled to meet Janet McTeer. Hello, thank you. I understand that when you were here doing Mary Stewart, you had the opportunity to go and see the first American cast of God of Carnage. Is that true? Yes, it is. So here's a show that you'd done originally in London, um, and as I understand it, in London, although you did it with English accents, the play was left set in France, where Yasmin Reza originally set it. Yes. What was it like seeing the show Americanized? It was great. It was really sort of strange because it is the same director. And uh, so the show essentially is the same. It's the same set. And uh, everyone is within the same parameters of style. And a lot of the almost 95% of the moves of the staging of the piece was the same. uh, Matthew always describes it as a piece of music. Um, the play because everyone has their own solo everyone has the you know little du- duologues here there and over there and it's uh, it's very much has a pace to it and you have to find the pace and you have to keep to the pace and um, all of that was very very similar to what we did in London I mean it was entirely recognizable and yet of course everyone's still translating it and creating it themselves so it was fantastic to watch because it was complete four completely different performances from the ones that i knew yet more or less exactly the same production style wise and movement wise and and it's just it was really um i really enjoyed it i Mm. thought it was really good fun and really uh uh, it was. I saw it quite near the b- beginning of the run, and I remember thinking, "Gosh, I'd love to see it towards the end of the run because the more you do the play, the bleaker it gets." Hmm. And uh, when by the time we finished the play uh, in London, I think we were. It was m- much bleaker than it had been at the beginning, and I think that's because as you go along doing any play, you relax more, and every night you find new things and you plumb the depths of the character. So the more you go on, the more you realize you're playing certainly in Veronica and and, um, Michael roles, you're playing two characters whose marriage is virtually irredeemable by the end of the play. So um, it's kind of, it's a a bleak old tragedy. It's interesting that you talk about the bleakness because I read an interview in which there was discussion of the fact that when you were all in the rehearsal room for the original English production, Mm. you all thought, it was a pretty heavy, serious play. Totally. And you only discovered that it was funny when you got in front of an audience. Yes. Yeah. When we were rehearsing it, and I remember the same thing, you know, what's so wonderful about Broadway is it's a very small community, and I would bump into Marsha and, you know, Jeff, and, uh, you know, you'd bump into each other. And I remember every time I'd bump into it, they'd say, Marsha would say, how did you do this bit? How did you do that bit? This isn't funny. It's just not funny. And I remember when we first rehearsed it, we would just think, well, this just isn't funny. The only way it works is as as a bleak, dark kind of who's afraid of Virginia Woolfian one half and, I don't know, some Alan Akeborn bleakness in the other half of the the two sets of couples. Apart from a few very, very obvious... Um, stonking great funny bits, the obvious ones, which I won't say just in case anyone hasn't seen the play. And um, and when we did the first, our first couple of run-throughs in the rehearsal room with, you know, the designer and a couple of other people, I remember them chuckling slightly and thinking, what are they laughing at? And it wasn't, and the very first time we put the play up, you know, in our first, uh, what do you call it, an invited dress, I think you call it, we call it an open dress. First time we had an audience and everyone was laughing. I remember Ray Fiennes, who was playing the, um, the, the Alan part, uh, 
turning up stage and pulling a face at me in absolute horror because he had no idea what he thought. He was just, he came straight off stage and phoned his agent and said, what the hell have you got me into? Get me out of this. I don't understand. And we were all completely thrown. And it wasn't until we had done it a few times that we actually realized, and the play is really simple. I, my analogy is that you, it's like being in a, a rather nice cafe or a rather nice, you know, nothing's too swanky, but a rather nice restaurant. And you're having a very nice conversation with, so there's a certain appropriateness of behavior. That's the audience. The audience is everyone in the nice restaurant. And then two people at a table over there start arguing. And it's so inappropriate, it's funny, because it's inappropriate. So from the outside, the rest of the people in the restaurant, you sort of find yourself laughing at them. And then at some point, the woman bursts into tears, in which case you think, oh, my God, I can't believe I laughed at them. That's terrible. How hmm. could I be so cruel? And then the guy starts virtually punching the girl, in which case you think, well, this is a bit scary. And then she does something, breaks a lot of tables, and the whole thing becomes like a farce again. So from everybody else in the restaurant's point of view, it is alternately hysterically funny because they're so ridiculous, these people. And it's a totally inappropriate place to have this kind of uh, a fight. But it's totally mesmerizing. And that's why it's funny. But from the inside, from the two people having the fight, nothing funny at all. And is that true for you performing the role? Yes, absolutely. You have to play it as if it's, as if it's you know, means everything. And you're playing it with all the kind of depth of feeling and strength of, <clears throat> of meaning and feeling and worry and self-criticism and self-loathing and all the other things that one's character hmm. has. The only difference is slightly is that in the performing of it, you know, like I say, if somebody comes and threatens you with um, a fist, I know, I remember once years and years ago, a friend of mine, lovely actress, saying uh, just before opening night, was so terrified, she said, I think I'm going to kill myself, I'm going to throw myself down the toilet. Now, of course, the idea is funny, the feeling is truthful, but she totally wanted to kill herself, she didn't want to go on stage, <laughs> But the, the way she described it was funny. And, and it's that. Does it, so the feeling is the same. So when you're performing it, of course you know that if you do certain things at a, set, a higher, slightly higher pitch, it will be funny. If you don't do it at a higher pitch, it won't be funny. So there's a lot of comical technique within that. Of course there is. But it's so, a fine line. So when you came to do it here, mm. um, my understanding is that there's a full rehearsal of the new cast. It's yes. not like you have a one-week put-in or not anything like that. You came knowing the version of the show or the dynamics of the show yeah. as they were in England. Jeff, who changed roles and is now playing your husband, knew the dynamic of how it worked in the U.S. Mm -hmm. How did you find coming into an American company of this? Well, uh, again, directed still by Matthew Warchus, so it's yes. not a different. No, 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 no. It's still the same process. But there's two ways. I mean, some people would say that to come in to do a part you've already done before is sort of easy. You don't have to rethink it. You don't have to re-delve it. You don't have to redo all of those things. But I think if you do that, then you, then where's the challenge? Where's the fun? Where's the rediscovery? And it's quite dull. So I think you have to, even though you know the parameters, you have to, within that, you have to start again. So it was up to me, but I decided to try and do it American because I just thought, why not? Hmm. Um, because I thought, well, I'm, you know, I'm an American uh, character in an American play. Yes, you could say I come from England, but there isn't a line that says that. So Yet when Ken just... Stott did it in the last cast, he yeah. stayed with an English accent. Scottish. Don't Scottish. ever my tell Ken Stott. Oh, my mistake. <laughs> but he, he stayed with the... Cap, but he yeah. kept an accent. Yes, he did. And um, that was perfectly just fine choice. choice. But I just thought I would give myself a bit more of a challenge because I enjoy that, hmm. <laughs> if anyone hadn't noticed. And um, it seemed like a good idea. And I, and I just um, – because, uh, you know, every marriage is different, every dynamic is different. So the dynamic between Jeff and I is very different from the dynamic that was between um, uh, Ken and I when we did it originally. Right. And, of course, you did have the benefit of the fact that Jeff was not playing the same role. Yes. You know, he he essentially was an, is on his second wife with the show. <laughs> yes, he is. Um, <clears throat> so that has to have helped that he you weren't fitting in 
with a performance that he'd already mastered. Yes, neither, neither of us were. We were both kind of... And I also think if you're going to... I mean, the same thing happened... A similar thing happened in Mary Stewart because when we came here, the only people who came with Mary Stewart was, was Harriet and myself. Who Harriet played um, Walter, who played Elizabeth I. And, you know, the entire rest of the cast were new. They were Americans. So, and again, it's, it's a sort of about a philosophy of creativity, really, which is how do you get the best out of people? How do you be the best? You have to start at the beginning and really um, take on board... You, you have to allow people to discover their own play, even within the parameters of the play that you know you are producing, you know. And consequently, everyone is discovering their own version of the character. And so if that's what you believe, rather than just saying, oh, darling, would you move left and pick up, pick that up and don't move until the end of my line, what's the point? There's, there's nothing new there. And if it isn't new and fresh and rediscovered, then it's, it's not, that's not what I want to see on a stage. So. so is Veronica different from Veronique? She is, yes, she is. First of all, she's American. So th there's a very different sensibility about, um, a very different way about manners, about, you know, the, the, the way the, um, the, uh, the way one is socially is very, very different. Um, I, I think, <clears throat> you know, of course, in France, they do call each other Madame and Monsieur. And, um, uh, which is, in a funny way, it actually works better here than it does because here people say, thank you, ma'am, or excuse me, sir. We don't do that in England. You know, mm. We don't call people sir and madam. Because no. over there they have to be designated as such. Yes, yes exactly. sir, at least. <laughs> so you tend, we tend not to do that. So that, that kind of prefix isn't there. But um, So in that sense, it's different. I think in terms of the, the – the, because of the, the – the accent is so different, you know, being an American is different, one's relationship with one's emotions is different because one is American. All of those things are very different and um, great fun, I have to say. What about the relationship between the American and the English audiences? How did they differ in their reactions to the show, uh, if at all? Yes, American audiences in general are louder. Mm. They, have, um, they have a great... Um, they're less restrained than we are. We are. It doesn't mean it is felt any the less, but it might be shown a little less. It, it, they make every night. You know, people make comments or they make noises or they they and all of that. Of course, in a comedy is wonderful because you get such an enormous energetic feedback from an audience when you know you you get the laughter that you're hoping for, and it's a very it's, it's strange. In, in, in a tragedy, it's different. Silence is the thing that feeds you in a, in a tragedy. If they're totally silent, you know you've got them. And in a comedy, if they're laughing, and of course in, in God of Carnage, when it, because it does turn on a sixpence and you have the power to do that. And I think that's why the playing of the tragedy is important because there's a lot of the play that isn't funny. So when something isn't funny, it has to have something else. Mm. So if it doesn't have the depth, then what has it? got it's a comedy that isn't funny so um, do, is it harder to make to get the audience to accept the turn in america or did they turn just as quickly with you if they since they have been more vocal and perhaps are truly feeling they're at a laugh out loud comedy when do um, they get pulled up short i no i think it's sort of different in a way because i think they it, it starts off quite slowly and they don't laugh first and and then it slowly gets going hmm. and and then it sort of has these peaks and troughs and you know there are another sort of bit of music in the whole comedy and there's bits that you just are yelling over the audience and bits that are just silent for hmm. a minute and um uh i think i think they get it pretty quickly i think the other thing is that a lot of people have seen a yasmina razor play before so they sort of know the territory depends on which play you see, though, because think, yeah. I think art has a very different dynamic yes, than – and true. that's – over here, at least, the one that has been most seen. Yeah, yeah. There are other Yasmina Reza plays which have played in the U.S., but not – certainly in New so York, not, not for anywhere yes, near yeah. the sustained run. Yeah. Um, yes, if people have seen Lifetimes 3, then – But even so, in art, it's, it's people mm -hmm. not being, in inverted commas, funny – and they don't have funny lines. But they, they it's end more, up arm in arm. And they, uh, yeah. 
It's, you know, it's, they it's all a, have a good laugh at the end. Yeah. And walk out happy. <laughs> That's true. So, we don't. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> the audience does, but the yeah, characters yeah, don't. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, let's go beyond God of Carnage. Um, I said in the introduction that you didn't really do theater as a child. You weren't in no, tons of school plays no. or things like that. And you just got it into your head that you were going to be an actress? Sort of. It's a bit strange, isn't it? We didn't really... I remember it's one of those things where looking back, you can kind of see pointers. But um, I did one play um, at at school when I was like 12 or something, and apparently I was very good in it. And then I did one, you know, you read a story at assembly. Do you call it assembly here? You know, you meet at night. And I did a story in assembly that everyone was raving about because it had characters in it and I played the character and whatever. And I must have been like 13 or something then. And that was more or less it. And um, I then didn't ever actually stand on a stage until I'd already got into RADA. Now, the story about you applying to schools is an interesting <laughs> one. Can you, can you quickly recap your, your application process? Well, I, 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 in the end, my bus stop where I got my bus to go home, was uh, happened to be outside the the theater in my town where I grew up, and uh, a legitimate uh, theater. Yes, a proper yeah. theater. And, uh, and this we, is in York. In York, yeah. And uh, we used to have a little coffee bar, and we used to go there and flirt with the boys from the next door school. You know the way you do when you're fifteen or whatever. And uh, well, look at them and pretend you hate them. And um, and I just found the whole place really. I loved it. I just loved the place. And then I think when I was 16, I, I um, wanted a Saturday job. Or, so I went in and said, could I work behind the coffee bar? So I worked behind the coffee bar. And then I think I must have been maybe 16 and a half, 17, maybe just when, 17 probably. And um, and they uh, by then I knew everybody in the company and all that. And I was allowed to go in and they let me go in and see the plays. And I'd never really seen a straight play before. Hmm. I'd seen a couple of musicals or a couple of, you know, but not really, I wasn't, my family weren't interested in the theatre particularly. And um, so I went to see these plays and I would sit and I would watch them, I'd be totally fascinated. Then I decided I'd always been interested in English literature and reading, it had always been my languages, it had always been my my forte. And um, so I decided I wanted to go to university and study English literature and become a director or something. I didn't know. I just wanted to be something to do with the theatre. And then I went to see um, a production of She Stoops to Conquer. And I remember clearly, clear as a bell, sitting in that box. I was in a box right at the back. And uh, the lights went down and I got just such a buzz as the lights went down and as the curtain came up. And I remember thinking, if I don't have a go at that, I will regret it for the rest of my life. And I came out of the show and I said to the actors who I knew by then, vaguely, I, I, I want to be an actor. And of course, you know, they went, right, great, yep, great, lovely. And I said, where do I apply? And they gave me a list of the five or six, seven, I think there were best schools to apply to. And then I'm sure they promptly forgot all about it because I think there are quite a lot of 17-year-old girls who want to be actresses. And so I, I found out about them and I applied. And... Um, I think my school thought I was mad. They wanted me to go to university and get a proper degree and get a proper job. And my school teachers were fantastic, my two English teachers. And they, uh, my fir- I think my first audition, <laughs> I did uh, Juliet, which is one of the Shakespearean ingenues I have never played. <laughs> and uh, I think I wore four and a half inch heels for reasons best known only to myself. And I think I left it because I was so nervous. And um, and I did some other terrible audition piece. And completely prepared on your own? I mean, you yes, just... Yes, no, totally on my know, own. up yeah. in your bedroom? Yes, in my bedroom. And then my teacher, one of my school teachers said, that's just a terrible speech. We'll have a look at some of these. And she gave me a book of monologues. And so I found one. And I thought, oh, I like that one. So I thought, well, I'll learn that one. And it was about a, a girl who'd sort of clearly never had a voice who turned around at the very end of the play. It was Beatty from Wesker's Roots. And uh, at the very end of the play, she has a big speech where she just eventually says what she feels and then catches herself out in the middle of it going, oh, listen to me, I'm talking, I'm actually talking. And um, so I thought I'd do that one. So my next audition was Rada. So I went down and I did my 
whatever Shakespeare it was, which I'm sure was truly appalling. And then I did this speech, not realising that actually it wasn't a terribly well-done speech, particularly at RADA, because the piece had been written for the principal's wife. And the, the prince had no idea, and I was doing this audition in front of this chap. <laughs> anyway, so I did this speech, and I, great, I loved the speech, and I remember afterwards the one of the guys they, them saying to me so so where where who who helped you with this and i went you know nobody did. and they said well where did you rehearse it and i said in my bedroom <laughs> they said what theater training have you had and i said nothing and they said okay well not training what 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 what's you know have you amateur dramatics or school and i went no i think i did a play when i was 12 and that was sort of it and they were kind of i don't know whether they thought i was insane or whatever but it, it, afterwards they said they they gave me a place there and then. And I right, well, the punchline is you said you applied <laughs> yeah. to seven schools and you got into like five of them? I did get into like five of them. There was this one actor who I worked with who um, who I knew sort of who was the uh, 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 one of the chaps in the in the theatre company where I got my coffee when I sold coffees. And I remember him, he was very kind to me and just a very pleasant fella. And I remember when I got into these drama schools thinking, oh, I don't know what to do. So... I phoned somewhere and found out where he was and he was working at another theatre and I phoned him in the green room of the theatre and I, he answered the phone and I said, hello, do you remember me? Um, I'm the coffee girl and you said you'd help me and he went, right, oh, yeah, right, oh yeah, hello, right. And I said, well, you know you said to apply to those drama schools when I've got into five of them, which ones should I go to? <laughs> and there was this sort of shocked pause and then he said... Um, well, I went to Rada and it was great. I went, OK, thanks, bye. Put the phone down and that was it. And that was my decision made. So and then years later, he, he opened a, about four years later, whatever, he opened a paper and he said he nearly died because he, he saw, he went, oh, my God, there she is. And I was in a play, in one of my first plays. And in the end, he played um, Paulette in the London production of Mary Stewart. Huh. So it was lovely, really nice. Having minimal preconceived notions. I mean, most of the people I talk to about when they go to school for theater, they've been in lots of plays, mm. they did it on an undergraduate theater, and now they're going to graduate school, or they were in every show, you know, before they, they got to college level. You had so few preconceived notions. You must have been almost a blank slate. I was totally blank slate. I had no idea whatsoever. And so... Did you just take to it, or did you find you had to adjust to it? Oh, huge adjustment. My first term at RADA, I lived in a bedsit in somewhere, in, and I was so lonely and miserable. I used to go home at the end of the day and just sort of go to bed and cry. And at weekends, I just used to... I was too terrified to go out. It was such a huge shock from my sort of small-town upbringing. But was it the small town? Was it the shock of being in London? Or was it the schooling? Everything. Hmm. It was all of it. I felt like I was just a country bumpkin and everyone else was just knew so much more than I did. Yeah, I mean, we should say, for people who don't know, York is up towards the northern part of England. Yes, it's a small town in the north of England. Three three hours out of London. Yeah, good. Yeah, exactly. So it was... um, which in England is quite a long way. Right. <laughs> and uh, it, I, for, so for the first time, and then by the end of the first time, I'd made some friends, and then I made a, you know, we moved into an apartment, a bunch of girls, whatever, and then it was great fun. But I did, I didn't find it an easy track. I didn't. I think in my, there are seven terms all in all there were when I went there, and seven quite long terms. And in my fifth term, I think I, I sort of lost my confidence, and I wanted to leave. And uh, um, the principal, uh, who, who was a legendary figure called Hugh Cretwell, who's glorious, was a glorious man, he, he, I think he realised that they'd sort of pushed me slightly too far. And mm. so he, um, uh, they gave me small roles and I didn't do a lot for a term or so. And uh, I've often had that. I've, I'm, I am a horrific perfectionist, although I have learned how not to be quite so bad as the years have gone mm. on. And I, I often feel if I don't know what I'm doing, I, I would rather... Ugh, I, I'd rather I'd just pay everyone in the audience to go home, you know, than, than be in front of them being bad. But obviously you made it through. How quickly did you get your first job? Immediately. I got my first job just before I left. And this is the Nottingham Playhouse That's right, in yeah. 1984. Mm, I production one, of Mother Courage. My production of Mother Courage. I had to say farm. That, that was my, your, your entire... That was my entire line. Okay. Yeah. 
And there were some neat people there at the same time, I read. There were some great people. And then my second, the other one, Hugh Grant got his uh, his uh, equity card there as well. And we used to have to, he used to have to read poetry to me in the back of a, back of um, a scene hmm. in some other stuff. It was, it was, we had a, it was good fun. You then did all in 1984, it looks like several shows at the Royal Exchange in Manchester. Was that rep or was it just three shows in sequence? No, we did it. We did, um, did we do them in sequence? I think we did them in sequence, yes. And the, the Manchester Royal Exchange was just the most fantastic theatre. And I had an absolute ball. And, um, you know, there's one, it's, it's funny, I used to beg for this to be put on my CV and my agent used to say, oh, no, you can't put that in, you can't put that in. But my second job was actually doing a very bad production of No Sex, Please, We're British on a <laughs> yacht in Norway. And uh, he, it was like I was being paid like £300 a month, a week, which was a phenomenal amount of money to me in those days. And I had to wear four-inch heels and wear a leopard skin bohini and I made the costumes. It was really, <laughs> really, really good fun. It was called Ingen Sex Tak für Britiske. Which is no sex, please, rubbish in in Norwegian in this terrible production. Anyway, I had a blast, and when I was well, I, I was think there, that needs to go back and play the now you? with a good picture in the Norwegian, <laughs> so that only people who bother to find out know what the show was. I think that would be pretty terrific. And um, when I was there, my agent got me. Told me, uh, phoned me, and said, "Oh, you've been offered the Manchester Royal Exchange, and you've been offered these three parts in this in the season, which was a six month season of one one cast, one repertory company." And I said, "Yes, great, I'll do it, I'll do it." And I'd been offered some telly, and I said, "No, no, I want to do the theatre, I want to do the theatre." And then I'm, again, I'll never forget. I was sitting down, and I thought, because I hadn't read Cymbeline, and I thought that Imogen, the Queen, was the main role, and Imogen was a kind of nice daughter spot. So I kind of gulped when I read that and realized she was a really big role. Mm. And then we did some another play called, uh, oh, what's it called? The one You did The, the Admirable Crichton. Admirable Crichton, yeah. The Admirable Crichton. And I thought, oh, I know the main part in that one. I've seen the film. And then when I read it, I realized I was playing a really fabulous part in that as well. And I remember getting so nervous thinking, oh, my God, I've really got to do it now. People, mm. going, people are going to pay money. And it was, it was scary. And I had an absolute ball. I loved it there. Now, you and then did, I went back there several times. You, do, you did go back several times, but mm. in 1985, already, you're down at the Royal Court, mm-hmm. which, is, of course, you'd gone to school in London, mm-hmm. but like so many actors here in New York, you may train in New York, but you go out to the regions mm-hmm. to do some work. Yeah. How did you get yourself down to the Royal Court? You did Timberlake Wharton Baker's uh, The Grace of Mary Travers. Yeah. That's, I mean, anything at the Royal Court is a great, great showcase. So. It is, yeah. I, I think, to be honest, by the time I would opened in, in the Royal Exchange, you know, the Royal Exchange, the, at that time particularly, when things changed with Margaret Thatcher, but uh, at that time there were quite a number of very, very prestigious theatres outside of London that people travelled to and everybody worked at. They were mm. fantastic. And that changed slightly with in the Thatcher regime uh, subsidizing changed and all kinds of things however so i'd already made a name for myself and most people in the business had been to see me in Hmm. in stuff so you know and those things they get you know it's like the times review here you know those things would get the big times review. but i guess the benefit it's a small country in terms of distances so even if you are working in what we consider regional theater it's a few hours it's It's not it's not the difference of if you're in new york and you go do a show Show in in chicago Chicago. absolutely no 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 not at all and so like i said most of the casting directors and the people because i'd i got very very good reviews and and uh and you know, loads of people came to see it. So I was already a bit of a, a young something. Hmm. Well, you certainly were, because again, as you said, it's 1984. You got out of school immediately, got a job at the Nottingham Playhouse. By 1986, you're playing Hippolyta and Titania at the Royal Shakespeare Company. Yeah. Two years out of school. Yeah. Unbelievable. I know it's mad, isn't it? And I mean, what was? Were all of these sort of rep companies, or were they all casting individually? I mean, for each show, or you it, went ca- in casting, and did a season? Yeah, casting individually. Now, who was your director for the Midsummer? Uh, Bill Alexander, lovely man. He's really nice. It was a beautiful production. You're playing major roles yeah. at the Royal Shakespeare Company. You're 
24, I yeah. take it, about this time. Yeah. Um, it just seems – again, how are you coping <laughs> with all of this? It's interesting you should say that. This, that. this sort of role went on for quite some time. And I think when I was about 28 or 29, uh, I was almost burnt out. I would sort of was exhausted and, and uh, I took a six-month sabbatical and um, went off to, to um, have a rest, basically. Mm-hmm. And I realized that um, I had to sort of have to rethink because I just worked too hard. And if I wasn't working, I didn't have any time for anything else. And so I just decided that I had to uh, shift my perspective on myself and realize that I wasn't at a stage anymore where uh, I had to scrabble and scrabble and scrabble to try and get a job. I was being offered work and I had to actually begin to be selective Hmm. and not do too many things and to understand that, you know, I'm only human. I, I, I can't do everything. And so I did, I didn't slow down, but I certainly, um, I certainly uh, didn't overlap jobs. I didn't do two jobs at the same time, all those kind of things. Mm-hmm. So. so in this period, as you say, you know, everyone has figured out who you are. Um, you go back to the Royal Court in the Howard Brenton play. You then at the National in Uncle Vanya. I mean, very significant. Had your schooling prepared you? For all of this, did you were, you, know, were you secure as as you were just rushing up the ladder? Um, I think the one thing that my school hadn't taught me, which is the one that I, maybe they do teach it now, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to go back and see, but they don't teach you to slightly realize that you are a one man business. Which means that you know, to me, the real skill about being an actor is what do you do when you're not working. Mm. How do you, and for sometimes, sometimes that's longer times than others and sometimes it's short, do you rest? Do you keep your voice practice going? Do you um, make sure you do all of the things that you don't do? do you, how do you do your, keep your taxes and your financial things going? How do you keep, make sure that you are as fit as a fiddle so that if someone happens to ring you up and there happens to be something fantastic around the corner, you've got time to, to you're always prepared, in other words, and it... It wasn't no nothing, and and you know, a we, everyone knows you leave your ego at the door, but you also need to leave your um, your personal life at the stage door, you know, so that when you when you go to work, you go to work. There's an element of it that is, and that I think this is quite British actually, and you learn this when you do it. You don't necessarily learn it um, on the in school. Is we're very professional. British actors are extreme. I'm not saying that American actors aren't. Don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But there's a big thing about that. You know, you turn up, you turn up on time. You don't miss shows. You know your lines. You know, the, the, you, do you know what I mean? There's no kind of... It's a job. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, people are paying us money to go on that stage and do a job every night. And that's my job. Now, it also is my greatest love and it's my great, you know, vocation and I love it and I, I don't know what I'd do if I didn't do it. But it's also a job. And that's that's very British. And you learn that as you go along. In the sense that you learn it from the actors that you're working with. Yes, you learn it as you work. And you learn it as you make mistakes, as you sort of finish a job and think, oh, great, I'll sit around and do nothing for six weeks. And and then you get, you know, I don't know, you you haven't done anything. You haven't done any of the things that need to be done, whatever they are, the ordinary life things like, I don't know, your bank accounts, your tax, your, uh, whatever it is. And then suddenly a job turns up, you start work the next day, and then you suddenly find out that you've got bills to pay and you haven't done them because you've forgotten because you're now too busy and life gets unbelievably stressful. Hmm. So that kind of thing. Huh. Now, and, the, and oh. your self-perception. Mm-hmm. Or rather, how you choose to be perceived, where you're aiming, what you want to be perceived as. Can you explain that more? Because I'm not that, that that could mean so many things. What you want what, you what perceived became, as as a performer, perceived as as a person. Both, both. I've always been very private as a person. I've always personally believed that my private life is nobody else's business but mine. Mm-hmm. Um, no one has a right to that. You know, a lot of people don't think that. Um, I never wanted to be uber famous. I never courted that kind of fame. Uh, I just wanted to do my work. 
On the other hand, if people don't know who you are, then why would they come and necessarily see you in something? Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a fine line. You want people to... So I wanted to be known for my work. And I also, I guess, wanted people to know that I was professional, nice to work with, and a decent human being. Other than that, you know, my life is my own. Whereas some people don't feel like that. They like the whole glitz and glamour of the thing, and they like to be recognized all over the place and all of those kind of things, and that just doesn't appeal to me. Do you get recognized on the street in England? Mm, not very often. I, I, I'm, I, I'm told that I get recognized a lot more than I think I do. But, uh, but in England, it's, people more than likely will never come up and say anything. Really? Yeah, they would never come up and say anything unless it was in the queue at the supermarket. Somebody might come up and say, I'm very fond of your work. It's very good. Huh. Uh, thank you very much. And that's it. Whereas here, people will openly say, I think you're great. I saw you in the show. You're fantastic. Or I really enjoyed the show. Or they do, you know, they're just, like I said, Americans are more open in that sense. And how, how do you react to that? When you come here and people... I think I love it. I think it's absolutely lovely if people have been to see you in something and they want, they feel that they want to say thank you very much, they really enjoy it. It's great. Hmm. It's lovely. I mean, if your audience don't enjoy it, what's the point in doing what you do? But again, the issue of, you know, invasion of space, you know, do... No, because I think most people, 99% of the people come up and they just want to tell you they've enjoyed your show. Right. Thank you so much. Shake your hand. Move on. Have a lovely Plus, day. Plus, over here, you've done classy work. It's not like you're known for a situation comedy or something. You I know, guess. You're, you're someone who's played major... Yeah. Two major classical roles and yeah. now, you know, a major modern role. Mm. Um, so I guess that would inform the kind of people who I recognize guess. Well, It's you. the same in England, really, because yeah. I haven't really done that much different work from this work. This is the kind of work I do. Right. So. I wanted to ask you, you've done an awful lot of classical work. Mm -hmm. and I read you've, you've done most of the major women's roles in Shakespeare at one point mm -hmm. or another. Um, God of Carnage is, of course, uh, a new play. Um, and you've done a few other new plays. I mentioned Grace of Mary Travers, uh, the Howard Brenton play, Greenland. You did Sam Shepard's Simpatico. Mm -hmm. um, but it's been heavily weighted towards the classical. Mm. Was that a choice or is that what you were simply getting approached for? A little bit of both. You know, I... Uh, I love, I mean, some of the classics are called classics for a very good reason because they're classically fantastic. And um, so, you know, if I get a chance to play one of those big boys, then I'm, I'm going to have a go at it. Um, and it's, it's a bit of both. And, uh, you know, I've been asked to do a lot of plays that I didn't think were that great, so mm. I haven't done them. A combination of both. With... Doll's House. I read that you were very instrumental in that production happening. Mm -hmm. And even read a quote from you saying that we went to Frank McGinnis to mm -hmm. do the adaptation. So tell me the story of how the Doll's House project began. Um, well... I mean, in the end, as these things always are, they are, it was a huge collaborative effort. But the initial idea, yes, was mine. Um, I had seen the play several times. It's one of those plays you see. And every time I saw it, I just thought it was... Um, it, it didn't work. Never quite worked for me. And I had this idea that, that you know... Somebody who, t who lives in a marriage like that doesn't walk out of it lightly. And somebody who has lived like that for 20 years, or whatever, 10 years, or whatever it is, only, only lives like that because of the way she was for the previous, uh, you know, youth. In other words, this isn't some great feminist. This is somebody who's been brought up to live in that kind of marriage. And... I felt that to sort of walk out of a room and then come back into the room, having turned into the first sort of Emily Pankhurst, was to not understand the play and that it was much more... I thought he'd written something much more human than that, which was that somebody realises that her life is untenable and 
ha- finds herself having to leave it. And that the end of any marriage is horrifically painful, whether it's the right choice or not. And that it would be much more interesting to see a couple who look like the perfect couple and who were indeed deeply in love with each other crack before your eyes. And that when somebody walks out of the door, particularly when they're leaving their children, that's someone who doesn't know where she's going. She just knows she has to leave. That is terrifying. That's not some kind of great feminist walking out. It's an absolute... The courage is over... The bravery is overcoming the fear that says, just shut your mouth and stay where you are because it's easier. And I had this idea and I took it to Thelma Holt, a wonderful producer, and um, who was a friend because I'd done much to do about nothing with her. And I said, I've got this idea for the play and blah, and I think I should direct it because I've got a really good idea about how to do it. I want to do it. And I think that, you know, Torvald is often played so much older and crusty and you just think, why the hell did she ever marry him in the first place? Clearly because her father arranged it and from the opening two lines I'm waiting for her to leave. It's too dull for words. So let's get some handsome, vibrant, wonderful Torvald and you see this couple. It should, because we all know in real life... It happens all the time. People split up and the neighbours go, oh, my God, I'm, I'm so surprised. I mean, they look, they were wonderful. That's what happens in real life. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to try and make it more of real. So I told Thelma and, and then she said, I, I think you should play it, not direct it. And I said, I can't play it. Nobody's ever going to call me Little Squirrel, ever. And she said, don't be so silly. That's just, that's just nonsense. You know, we call each other all kinds of stupid nicknames. She's little on the inside. You, you have to play it. So then we decided, she decided she would do it. And then we decided, um, well, we had to get somebody who wanted to come on board and, and collaborate with that, you know. And um, so we met Anthony Page, who was just delightful and wonderful. And he completely bought the idea, you know, and said, absolutely. So then he was absolutely the director and... Um, Owen Teal, who was just magnificent as, as Torvald, and, and we worked on that idea, all of us together. And so that's kind of how it came about. And when did Frank McGuinness join the party? Oh, yes, oh, sorry. Um, yes, and at some point, once I'd had this idea, Thelma said, then we must go and get Frank McGuinness, and Frank McGuinness did a translation. So McGuinness did the work, and then Anthony Page signed uh, on? No, I think it was somewhere. all at the same time, actually, mm-hmm. to be honest, And because uh, Thelma had a relationship with um, Frank that was very good, and she loved his work, and he loves her, and he's a lovely writer. And he also collaborated. We would win rehearsals. We would talk about stuff, and, and he would rewrite it as we were doing it, and he would come in and... And then we were, and it was all about trying to make it in the now, in the present, in the medium, so that the idea was that by the time you got to Act Three, when you had the two people sitting at the table, the idea was that visually, the way they dressed, the way they looked, everything, they should look like it was just your next door neighbours, and it could be now. Hmm. And that was the idea that it becomes this universal kind of piece that transcends time. With the collaborative work, mm-hmm. obviously, you don't have to worry about the Ibsen estate. Frank McGuinness could adjust the script. How much did you – was it about altering the way the lines were spoke were said in English in terms of just a differing translation? Or did you actually make tweaks no, to the – No, 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 no. We didn't, we didn't tweak any meaning. Mm-hmm. But there were – you know, everything gets so lost in translation. I mean, you'd re- we must have read – Ten translations. In the rehearsal room, we had ten different versions, and every different version is completely different. I think, in fact, I'm sure, we also commissioned a direct translation from the original. And it's extraordinary how different a lot Hmm. of these translations over the years are from the actual literal word-for-word translation. And so we tried to go back to sort of what was really there. And Ibsen, I think, was my, you know, is incredibly clever. He wrote at a time when people went to see thrillers. So he set up a thriller. He set up a woman who had got a secret and in comes the bad guy and um, then it's about her trying to redeem her family. It's all about will she get away with it, will she not, will she, will she not. And then at some point when he's got his Victorian audience, 
by this grasp of their neck, he completely gets rid of the plot and just leaves us with Act 3, which is just the relationship between mm. the two people. So he kind of threw out a conventional little thread and then he slowly dragged them in so by Act 3 he got them on a totally, by then, for then, that time, spectacularly modern um, uh, act. Mm. And I thought it, we, we needed to do the same. I felt we needed to do the same. So we set it up as this sort of Victorian drama, modern, you know, and then by the end you have, two, with her curls and her frills and her Victorian frocks, and by the end she's just sitting there in a plain old dress and a shirt that could have been yesterday. Hmm. So it's a huge success in London. Mm-hmm. At what point did the talk of America begin? I think... Well, originally we did it for about five weeks, four weeks on tour and uh, outside of London, and then we came in, and then we were a huge success. And uh, and then at some point there was all that talk about Broadway, and one of the things I've learned is that I don't believe anything until it really happens. You know, I'll, I'll happily go along and I'll put in my pennyworth and I will do all the hard work, but I won't put my heart on the line until it happens. And then suddenly it did. Did it matter to you if the play went to New York? I mean, as you say, oh, you didn't I want to invest in it. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, no, emotionally invest in it. I mean, yeah, I mean, yes, I was desperate to come here and do a play. I mean, fantastic. I couldn't think of anything better, hmm. and I, I loved it. It was great. Why? why did Why did coming here to work appeal to you so much? Well, you know, Broadway is. Broadway is Broadway. Broadway is amazing. Broadway is fantastic and it's legendary and it's legendary for very good reasons. You have an absolutely vast country and out of that vast country, this is the hub with the exception of a few other places. This is the hub of theatre and that's an amazing thing and people come from all over America and the rest of the world but all over America to this tiny little island, to these ten square blocks or whatever it is, to see theatre. Mm. And it's just amazing. And it has the same romance for people in England that it does. Oh, amazing romance. Mm. It's so romantic to come here and do a play on Broadway. It doesn't, it's amazing. It's fantastic. It is glorious. And, you know, so of course I wanted to do a play. And is there a a difference to be, I mean, here's, the show is a hit in both places. Yeah. Is there fundamentally a difference to being in a hit over here than being in a hit over there? Does it feel different in some way? I think one of the things that, there are certain things you never get back. You never get your first dance. You never get, you know, all those things. You never get your first kiss. You never get them back. One of the things that was, I guess, people know about me now is that I pack a big punch. <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I pack a big welly. I have a lot of, um, I have a lot of emotional fire. Um, I have a lot of power. And people knew that by then in England. Here... Nobody had ever heard of me. So when I was doing the first two acts of The Doll's House, when I was very much, you know, in the blonde wig and all the curls and the, you know, the, the curvy figure with the nice dresses and the, the, the very girly, I know a lot of people at the end of act, in the interval, would think, because they told me, would say, I've no idea how that ditzy blonde is going to do act three. Oh. So that when I brought out the big stuff, the big guns... They were completely shocked. Hmm. And that, of course, you never get back. You never get that back, that surprise. So it meant that when people came to see me, they'd never, they didn't see me, they saw this, you know... Uh, they saw the character I, that yes, you were playing. kind of they girly didn't, They didn't character. know who Janet McTeer no, was, so they didn't no, go in they, with any preconceived notions. Exactly, notice. and they didn't have, so they go, oh, that's that, and she's not very strong, and she's got a quite a light voice, and she's this and that, and then... Slowly it changed until eventually she just explodes. And at that point, you kind of, I think people were going, because they hadn't seen it coming. I mean, that's so interesting because, of course, for any actor, the first time they're seen by an audience, if, if you have a, a constant audience of mm-hmm. the critics and certain theater goers, if they have no preconceived notion, they're going to go where you're taking them. And it's different. And they bring nothing else br- to no, it. No, absolutely. And whereas, like in God of Carnage, for example, there's a, f- a couple of moments where I know the audience are waiting for me to blow. Hmm. You know, they're waiting for the big guns to come out. And and it's it's very, very funny. And I can use that to my advantage because I can completely... I can batten down the batten down, batten down, batten down, and batten down. Because 
it, it's just it's it adds to the humor hmm. but as i say it's, with that particular play it, it, it worked to my favor that nobody knew who i was or knew that you know knew my emotional i don't know what would you call it well, your, your capability, your volatility, yeah, all of those things, all of those things. <laughs> that, that, that they didn't know that it might come out. And again, yeah. given the approach to the show as well, you weren't playing Dollhouse the way most people had probably seen yeah. Doll's House before. Yeah, exactly. So with all of this triumph, following Doll's House, there was a four-year hiatus from the stage? Yes, there was. And was that by choice? Yes, totally. It was... Um, uh, it was a combination of lots of things. One of the things that was magnificent about the doll's house was that it was magnificent. But, you know, I did it for a long time, and that performance was huge. It was huge. And by the end of the show, I was thin as a rail and absolutely exhausted. And I did it for some quite a number of months here and a lot of months. It was a, far too long to do a show that big there's no way i would do a show that big now not really not for that length of time without insisting on a holiday um because it was just so tiring so by the time i finished i just thought i just didn't have this energy hmm. and then also i was asked back to back to back it just so happened that i was asked to do really lovely little independent films and um and then i sort of uh all of these things just went on and it just sort of kept going. And then till suddenly I thought, oh, I, I, I want to go on stage again. Hmm. And so I said to my agent, I want to find a piece. And because, um, I mean, I did Tumbleweeds and then I did, which I rehearsed for for quite some time uh, and uh, learned all the accents and stuff and then filmed that. And that all took a while. And then that did the rounds of the, oh, and then I went off and made another film and, and, uh, Song Catcher, which was a beautiful film. Um, and all these things take quite a lot of time. Yeah. And so somehow it just sort of added up. And then between all of that, my uh, nephew had been very ill. And uh, so I went home and I was at home a lot. And I just, it just didn't, I guess I just had my fill for a while, hmm. really. And then suddenly I woke up and went, I want to go back on that stage. My, you know, my coffers are filled again, and I want to go back. And so I found my agent, and I said, I want to go back on the stage and start asking around. And then um, I met Philip Lloyd, who directed *Memory* and *Mary and uh, we decided to do a play together. And so we uh, did *The Duchess of Malfi* at the National, and so that was six months ahead. So really, it was about three years without theatre, hmm. and then I set something up. I want to be sure to ask you about two other roles. Now, this first, I pray to God in our research, this is not a typo, because it, I'm told that in 2003, you did Shakespeare's Globe and played Petruchio. I did. I did. <laughs> it was, the, you know, there at the Globe, they have all-male casts, and they play all these plays. And then Mark Rylance, God bless him, who I adore, um, who I had worked with, and he's a friend, uh, he... They decided they wanted to have an all-female cast and they wanted to do Taming of the Shrew. So he called me up and said, do you want to play Petruchio? And rather like you, I thought, I'm sorry? <laughs> and he said, Petruchio. And I said, are you kidding? And I was wondering, I was doing, the, I was doing Dutch Amalfi at the time and I was wandering up and down the corridor in my Dutch Amalfi car laughing out loud. And I said, I can't even begin to possibly turn that down. Of course I'll play it. And um, so we did and Phil had directed that as well and we had a ball. And what was your approach... To Petruchio, I mean, what was the the production's approach? Was was there a winking at the audience that this was a group of women playing the you know, show, it's so or did strange. you? I mean, it's a strange way of saying it, but did you play it straight? It's so strange because when we first started doing it, you kind of kept apologizing for yourself somehow, or you kept thinking we have to comment somehow, or and then and then we found that if we played it totally straight, it just didn't play at all. It just didn't work if you played it totally straight. Because if you played it totally straight, you thought, well, why? What's the point of having girls there? What's the point of doing this? And um, meanwhile, Mark Rylance was, uh, was it at the same time? I don't think it was, or was it at the same time? Yes, I'm sure it was at the same time. I get slightly confused. Was playing Olivia in um, Twelfth Night. And he was genius funny. I mean, genius funny. Mm. And he was totally truthful, 
but mirroring girls. Hmm. And so we decided to do that. So we all sort of mirrored men. We slightly took the mickey out of men. All the different kinds of archetypes of men. And because we were girls, everyone found it very funny. Hmm. And that it was sort of postmodern. Felder and I were determined to make it a postmodern production. It was you couldn't go into the kind of oh my god, Kate is this abused and, and they're all ugh, it doesn't work. You know, it had, not with a group of all women. It didn't. You had to find a way of doing it that meant the girls won because they were girls, hmm. and we did. I, I can't describe it. You'd have to see it. It was incredibly funny. It, it sounds and the wonderful. last the last section with uh, you know Kate's famous speech was hysterical. Hmm. It's great. Hmm. And I had a ball, I have to say. I loved playing a man. It was way more fun than playing a girl. Then, not long after, Mary Stewart. Mm-hmm. Was this, again, working with Phyllis Lloyd, mm-hmm. was this a project you cooked up together? Was this something she was doing and approached no, you no, about? No, I mean, we're great, great, great friends. So um, she and I were looking for a project. And we were between us sort of going, all right, you take that anthem of plays and I'll take this anthem of plays and we'll look and see if we... And we had a couple of ideas. And then Michael Grandage, who runs the Donmar, uh, he was into, into Schiller. So he's, he said, Mary Stewart, what about Mary Stewart? And um, so we read it, and we read it several times, and then we decided it would be a good fun thing to do. And funnily enough, when we first were reading it, I didn't know which part I wanted to play. Hmm. I wanted to, because I thought Elizabeth was way more interesting because she's just so clever and so um, the speeches were so difficult and I don't know I just thought it was more on me than than you know if you think about Mary Stewart you're more likely to cast me as Mary Stewart hmm. and uh, not to mention the fact that she was famously well for British people she was famously tall she was five foot eleven which in fifteen whatever is you know hugely tall it's like being six foot five and a woman now mm-hmm. and um anyway i but then eventually i just had a really easy thought which i don't know if this comes out wrong i don't mean it to but often when you're you know lucky enough to be playing leading roles you never get to work with the people who you admire because there's only one leading lady's role mm-hmm. and, I and wanted this is to, one of the rare rare yes. classical pieces with two yes, leading ladies exactly and i suddenly realized that if i played mary it was my opportunity to play opposite some of the one woman who i had you know admired as i was a younger actress myself looking up and uh, and that to me was something i couldn't resist as opposed mm. to playing Elizabeth when I would be playing with some fantastic younger actress. Do you see what I mean? And mm. so selfishly, I decided I wanted to play with one of my icons. And I've had, I have a few British icons who could have played that role, but Harriet's one of my icons, and uh, it was my chance to work with her. And so, hmm. and again, the success of that show, but the timing was it didn't come directly to Broadway. You actually did God of Carnage in between? I did, yes. Yeah, hmm. it was real. that was really, really simple. Um, Harriet, and, or Harold, as I call her, Harold and um, Flipper and myself, who are great friends, uh, decided we wouldn't do the play without each other. It was that simple. We weren't prepared to do the play without each other. And uh, it was the only time, it was the first time we were all three. Hmm. Simple as that. Uh, Philida was doing um, Mamma Mia. And then after that, Hattie was already committed to doing Cleopatra for a year with the Royal Shakespeare Company in Stratford. So when she finished that, we all agreed that would be the time when we came here. Hmm. So the inevitable question, since we've, we've talked about several projects which you've really wanted to do and you've had a lot of say in, is there anything we should be looking forward to? Anything you're either trying to get going or that's already in the works? Well, I have got something that I'm trying to get going, which um, I'm not going to say in case it jinx it. But uh, that's a th- I've got two theatre projects I'd quite like to get going, um, whichever one lands first. But, you know, they take quite a lot of time. If you want to book a theatre, you've got to book it quite a far in advance and you've, then you've got to get somebody to back you and all, all these things. So that's a, a year away, I'd say. And we're actually trying to do a film of Mary Stewart, which mm. we're hoping to do at the end of this year. So wow. that's, And in the meantime, I'm going off to do, um, as soon as this finishes, I'm going off to do a film with Glenn Close, playing a man. Hmm. So that's, and she's also playing a man. So. 
It's great. It's called Albert Nobbs, which you, you might have Well, she had actually done the play. That's right. It's, it's got to be 25 years I ago. I think so, yeah. She's taken her ages and she's loved it. And then she wrote the script and then co-wrote the script, I think. I'm not quite sure about that. Hmm. But I know she's doing rewrites right now. And has finally got it up and I think we'll hopefully... Would? Uh, we're do- going in summer. Well, and yeah. like you, she she's got a project she wants to do and you are an actor who's not sitting around waiting for the next part. You're trying to make the next part happen, which is Well, it is. Terrific. The other thing is with this, it's also, you know, you get to a certain point where it's very difficult just to be sitting waiting for the phone to ring. It's not my cup of tea. I'm, hmm. I'm far too bossy, I think. So I love making things going. I love having projects that I'm starting going on, on and attempting to, uh, you know, collaborate with and projects that just turn up. You know, it's a lovely combination of both. Well, it's great for us, too. And currently in God of Carnage on Broadway until? July 6th. And with that, I will say, Janet McTeer, it's a pleasure to meet you. And thank you for being here on Downstage Center. Thank you so much. Our engineer for this Downstage Center program is Chad Bernhard. Our researcher is Craig Thompson. Our director of web development is Rob Perry. And our producer is Gail Yankosik. Downstage Center is recorded in the CUNY TV radio studio at the City University of New York's Graduate School of Journalism in Manhattan. Along with this program, all of the educational and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available online, on demand, for free from americantheaterwing.org. You can follow ATW on Twitter at The Wing and follow me as well on Twitter as H.E. Sherman. You can also declare yourself as one of our fans on Facebook at The American Theater Wing. If you're a regular listener to or viewer of Wing programs, we hope you'll consider giving us financial support to sustain our work. Just visit the website and click on Support ATW. For Downstage Center in the American Theater Wing, I'm Howard Sherman. Thanks for listening, and no matter where you live, I hope we'll see you at the theater.